Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Good morning, church. Good morning, everybody who's here, and good morning, everybody at home. I need to take my mask off. That's much better, isn't it? Um, and actually, I'm, I'm really pleased to be preaching today, partly because it is a little bit warm to be wearing a mask for the last 20 minutes. Uh, so for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to enjoy the breeze around my face. Um, and also, we've got a cracking bit of the Bible to be looking at together. It's a, it's a simple enough story. It's only five verses six verses but I've spent hours chatting with various people over the last week about it and I think there's loads of stuff to challenge and encourage us uh, as a church together so if you've been with us for the last few weeks you'll know that we've been studying the life and times of Ruth and Gideon and we've been doing this because if you put these two ancient stories together what you get is a really powerful picture of how God loves to take people from the margins from the fringes of society he takes those people and puts them right in the centre of his plans. And that was true 3,000 years ago in the days of the judges that we're looking at today. It was true 2,000 years ago in the New Testament times, the times of Jesus. And it's still true today in 2021 in the south of Manchester. The Bible says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I think this is fantastic news because this means that whoever you are, if you're feeling stressed or tired or low on faith or underhugged or unwell or incompetent or a failure, if you feel any of those things, well, that means that when God looks at you, he licks his lips, rubs his hands in excitement and goes, you're exactly the kind of person that I am looking for. Exactly the kind of person that I'm looking for. So today we're... Back to the life of Gideon. And if you remember, when we first meet Gideon, he's camped out inside a wine press, hiding from Midianite invaders. He's not a mighty warrior. And in the story that Claire preached on two weeks ago, he's scared of his own villagers. So when he carries out God's instructions, he does it in the dead of night in secret because he's afraid of his neighbors. He's not, he's not the club captain. He's not a leader of men. That's not the kind of man that Gideon was. And yet, for some reason that must be best known to God himself, Gideon is who God chooses to lead the fight against the Midianite army. And he instructs Gideon to go out and deliver Israel from their oppressors. So here's Gideon. He's a man, he's got some faith, but he hasn't got tons. He's a man who wants to serve God, at least in theory, but he's, he's not sure about what that looks like in practice. And he's a man who has lots of doubts. He doubts God's goodness. He doubts God's trustworthiness. And in his heart, he he doubts he has anything useful to offer God. And I think, in short, that that just makes Gideon a human being. Makes him a person like you. It makes him a person like me. And in today's story, what we see is God getting alongside Gideon in his humanity, in his doubt, and giving him the encouragement that he needs to go and do something extraordinary, which we won't quite get onto. So 
Let's get into the story. If you've got a Bible with you, do open it now to Judges, Judges chapter 6, um, and we're verses 33 to 40. Um, bit of context. The Midianites have now arrived and they've set up camp in the valley of Jezreel, which is a lush region of low-lying farmland. So let's start reading from Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Now, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh. He called them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew and there was a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't, don't be angry with me. Let, let me just make just, just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time can you make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew? And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Okay, I want us to notice two things from this story. The first thing to notice is that God can ask us to do really crazy things. I, I think nothing in this story really makes sense if we don't take a step back and recognize just how bonkers what God is asking of Gideon is. Because Gideon, he's a, he's a farmer. He's from Israel's kind of equivalent of Lincolnshire, sort of flat farmland in the middle of nowhere. And, and God picks Gideon and chooses him to lead an army into battle. When he sounds the trumpet in verse 34, people show up. It's not entirely clear why, but his clan shows up, his tribe shows up, and men from some of the surrounding tribes from Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, they show up as well. So soon, this rural farmer who started the harvest threshing inside a wine press finds himself in command of an army of over 30,000 men, which I just find a terrifying idea in and of itself. I mean, one time uh, when I was at school, I was, named, I was named captain of the school third rugby team just for one match. It wasn't normally me. Um, so for one game, a bit of a surprise, the coach said, Pete, you're the captain today. And I hated it because if you're in a rugby match before the start, you've got 20 kind of teenage boys huddled around, gathered in, and all of those pairs of eyes, they're looking at me going, can you say something inspirational? Can you lead us out into battle against the enemy? And they were hoping I'd inspire them to victory. And yeah, I didn't enjoy that. That wasn't fun. Um, I have a lot of sympathy with Gideon because if I can't look at 20 teenage boys and say, right, we're going to play a game of rugby, I have no idea how I would fight a battle with 30,000 soldiers under me. I reckon what God has asked Gideon to do is nigh impossible here. And also, when you think about it, what, what do you think used to happen in those days to people who led insurrections. 
against the dominant military power of the time. In fact, even forget in those days, like even today in most parts of the world, what do you think is going to happen to you if you lead an insurrection against the dominant military power of the region? There's only one thing that's going to happen, and you need to make sure you've got a good life insurance policy. Gideon is in a scary position here. It's dangerous. He's right to be afraid. And it's only natural that he doubts what God has said to him. But the truth is that this isn't unique to Gideon. It's not just Gideon who God asks to do crazy things. It's kind of just the way he operates as we read throughout the Old Testament. Let's just pick a few examples. Think of Abraham. Abraham had this you know, nice life. He had servants, family cattle and he lived in Ur which was like the center of civilization at the time and God says abandon that become a nomad I'm not going to tell you where you're going either that's kind of crazy think of Moses Moses is on the run from Egypt um, and God asks him to go back to Pharaoh who's the most powerful man in the world and challenge his authority directly to his face that's pretty crazy And there are other smaller examples as well, like think of Hosea, the prophet, who God asks to marry a woman who he knows is going to cause him nothing but pain and sorrow. It's crazy. And if we're talking about God asking crazy things, we can't ignore Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is like the classic example of this. God asks him in like a really short space of time to build a model army, to lay siege to a model city, to bake bread using cowpat for fuel, uh, and then to lie on his left-hand side for over a year. It's really strange. Seriously, if you ever think you've got God figured out, have a read of Ezekiel chapter 4, and you'll probably end up rethinking it. God asks people to do crazy things over and over again. And when I say crazy things, I really I mean unexpected things. I mean risky things. And certainly things that make no sense to anyone who's not following Jesus. So I think if we're his followers, it's completely normal to be scared and confused a lot of the time. I think C.S. Lewis describes it really well in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in his picture of Aslan, who's the, the Jesus figure in those stories. Because when Mrs. Beaver talks about Aslan, she famously says, Aslan, is, he's, not, he's not safe. He's not a safe, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. And that's the thing that we've got to remember. I think at this point it's worth saying that there's, there's probably two different types of crazy things that God can ask us to do. The, the first type, and all of the examples I've given so far fit in this category with Gideon, Abraham, Moses and the rest. They're specific personal things that God has asked. He's singled out those individuals and he's given them a risky job to do. They had to trust God with the reasons. They had to trust God with the outcomes, but they were called to be obedient in those particular things. And this kind of personal specific instruction still happens today. Some people, God gives a really strong sense of calling or vocation or a a clear word or sign that he's got a particular job for them to do or a life circumstance that's so distinctive that it's pretty obvious how he wants them to uh, act and serve in that setting and lots of us will have good stories of that kind of thing but there is another type of crazy thing there is a space for crazy things 
done as part of following Jesus that aren't in response to a specific or a personal sign. Here are just a handful of things that Jesus says um, in Matthew's gospel that are true for all of us, everyone in this room, and that could lead us to do some pretty unusual things. So firstly, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, my old pastor um, is a chap called Lee. Lee's family still think he's a bit mad because he gave up a promising, comfortable, lucrative career in the city in London to train as a pastor. And not, I don't think, because he had a particular word or vision from God, but simply because he trusts Jesus. He believes this word to be true and he's acting on it. He's following that instruction. And lots of people thought he was mad. Here's a, we've, we've spoken a lot about mission in the last few weeks, so I'm going to move on quite quickly. Um, the next thing that Jesus says, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I, I've got a couple of examples of this. I knew a girl when I was a teenager. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a, not literally, metaphorically, they've taken the principle and they followed through on it. I don't know that many maimed people. Um, from this verse but I knew I knew a girl who was a teenager she felt a conviction from God that she was developing an unhealthy obsession with uh, a rock band called Muse um, and particularly with the lead singer Matt Bellamy um, and she 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 realized that this was damaging her relationship with God and felt a real strong conviction to cut off that obsession that was causing her to sin and she got rid of all of her CDs and and I was the fortunate recipient, and I've, st- <laughs> I've still got them. So if anybody hasn't listened to Origin of Symmetry, then get in touch and I'll lend you the CD. Although that's not really how things work these days, is it? Um, I've got another example. Um, a friend at university who um, realized that he had a porn habit that was this deeply damaging thing. He couldn't stop looking at pornography and wherever he was he had a phone or a computer or a laptop or an internet connection he would end up against his own will really checking out um, these videos and he realized that this was a sinful habit it was driving him away from God it was making his life damaged in all sorts of different ways and he couldn't kick it not in any normal way and while he had the internet in his pocket he realized there was nothing he could do about it. So what he, what he did is he chucked his smartphone in the bin. Um, and he realized it was the only way to break that addiction. Uh, he still uses a, probably the same phone from 10 years ago. <laughs> he still uses that today. He doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't do group WhatsApp chats. Imagine life without group WhatsApp chats because he knows that it would be bad for him. So there's another example. And finally, one more thing that Jesus says He says in Matthew chapter 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. In in the context of this verse, Jesus is talking about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, housing the vulnerable. Um, And I've got friends who, they had some savings to invest. It was their, their kid's inheritance. It was that sort of sum of money that they were looking to invest. He's an entrepreneur. He wanted to found a business. Um... But instead of starting a business in a part of the world with a functioning economy where that business might actually make some money like a normal person might do, he spent years and years and years and tens of thousands of pounds 
developing a business in Malawi, in Africa. Um, and they're if you've ever tried to start a business in Malawi, which I don't imagine any of you have ever done, there's very little chance of seeing a material return on your investment in that part of the world. But the employment that he has provided has fed the hungry, has clothed the naked, has housed the vulnerable for years and years and years now. God can ask us to do crazy things. And if we follow him, I kind of means nothing safe in a way. Our time, our finances, our spare room, our comfort, our, even our safety, all of our resources, God can call us to serve him with them. But we have to remember, and the main point of this preach really, is that God is good. And that brings me on to the second thing that we need to notice in this story of Gideon. And that is, look how patient God is with us and with Gideon in particular. Let's go on to the fleece. Uh, some people reckon this fleece business is a, is a model for us to follow, that God wants us to copy Gideon and look for signs. And others reckon it's completely the opposite. It's an anti-model. It's, we're supposed to look at Gideon and go, well, that's not the way to do it. Next time God calls me to lead an army of 30,000, I know how not to do it. Um, but I don't think either of those are quite right, because the point of this story is, not to copy Gideon and it's not to judge him either because Gideon he's not you and he's he's not me he's Gideon he was a specific man in a specific situation facing a specific crisis and I think one of the main ways that we can misunderstand Old Testament stories like this is when we try to apply them directly to our situations as if God has given us a textbook for living he's like a maths professor giving us some some lines to follow but God hasn't given us a textbook full of instructions. He's chosen to give us literature. He's given us stories. He's given us poems. They're designed to fire our imaginations, to speak to our hearts as well as our minds. So what, what do we make of this fleece business? Well, I think we've got to, to recognise that Gideon does trust God. He does want to do what God says his mind is committed to God. But in his subconscious, he is afraid. And of course he's afraid because he's in a bind. God has asked him to do something really scary. So I think what Gideon ends up doing is he designs a test that he must be hoping is going to get him off the hook, get him out of going to war and allow him to retire gracefully and go, well, that was a weird month. Look at how he frames it. Look at how he asks God in verse 37. I will place a fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. Um, you see, in bold, put as you said, because Gideon knows perfectly well what God has said. So he's kind of, he's kind of saying to God that it's going to take a miracle for him to actually fight the Midianites here. Gideon in his humanity and his doubt, his fear and his vulnerability is standing there saying to God, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And I find that really relatable because I think actually there are things that I, I'm, a, I'm a bit afraid. I don't pray because I'm afraid that God might answer them and might ask me to do them. And when Paul says in the New Testament that God has prepared good works in advance for me to do, then there's part of me that goes, yes, that's fantastic, brilliant. And there's part of me that goes, hold on, 
What if I don't want to do them? Like, do I get a choice? So let's, let's take comfort from the most important thing in this story, and that's what God does. God does what Gideon asks. It's simple, really, but it's also really, really kind, very patient. There's no condemnation. There's no complaint. There's just the reassurance that Gideon needs when he needs it. I think God here is, is a bit like a, he's a bit like a dad teaching their kid to ride a bicycle. I don't know if you've ever tried to teach somebody to ride a bicycle or you've ever been taught, but when I learned to ride a bicycle, it was on the streets of Oxford. I must have been about five years old, and Dad would grab me, like so, by the scruff of my neck, and hold me while I tried to pedal, and then my feet, I'm seeing some nods from John, he's obviously been here before, Uh, and if I lost my balance, then Dad would be keeping hold of me, keep me going in the right direction, keep me safe. So although things kind of felt dangerous, especially when I lost my feet on the pedals, Dad was always there, keeping me safe. And it sounds kind of violent, doesn't it? But it never felt like I was being strangled. I think it would now. God here is a true father to Gideon. He is patiently bearing with him. He's supporting him. He is sustaining him. And he is giving him all the reassurance that he needs to go on. God is patient. God gets alongside us. It's who he is. It's how he works. It's what he does. For Gideon, it looked like the miracle of the fleece. For you or me today, it might look like an answer to prayer when we least expect it. It might look like a text message we receive when we're feeling down. It might look like an unexpected breakthrough in a tricky situation at work. But one thing is for sure, if we step out in faith, if we follow Jesus and do the crazy but good things that he has planned for us, we will feel that metaphorical support around the scruff of our neck. God will make sure that he has got us. We are safe in his hands.